0: Best speech I've ever heard in one of those Hollywood awards things. Now, I can imagine that you wouldn't really expect something deep and profound to come from the star of meaningful movies like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura, which by the way they made sequels to, if you can imagine that. Meaning the the world saw Dumb and Dumber and thought, that's not enough. We need another one, right? So this Jim Carrey showed up at the Golden Globes with his big bushy beard looking a bit out of place. And this Jim Carrey, with all the elite of Hollywood dressed in their finest garb, all the glamorous celebrities and stars that are adored and known world over, was introduced to the podium to give out an award. The introducer said, and now Jim Carrey, the two-time Golden Globe winner, will present this award. And so Jim Carrey walked up, and here's what he said. He said, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, reintroducing himself to the delight of the crowd. He said then, You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to sleep to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, he said, I don't just dream any old dream. He paused. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. And then he said this, Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And then he went on to say, but these are important, these awards. And sarcastically, he said, I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system, you wouldn't be able to find any one of us or anyone in human history with the naked award. I don't want you to think, in our perspective, these awards are huge. This matters a great deal. Now, Carrie said that sarcastically and comically so that no one was offended. And yet, did he ever hit the nail on the head on that one, right? We're all like that. For the actor, it's getting a Golden Globe or an Oscar. For the musician, it's getting a Grammy. For the sports uh, athlete, it's getting a championship. For a lawyer, it's making partner. For a businessman, it's getting a promotion. For a student, it's getting an A. For the teenager in high school, it's being popular or noticed. For the pastor, it's a great sermon. For the the mom, it's well-behaved kids. We could go on and on and on and on. But for every single one of us, there's something. For every one of us, there's something that if we could just get, or just do, or just be. For every single one of us, there's something. In varying degrees, whatever it might be for you, there's this sort of internal voice that says, if I could just accomplish this, or own that, or do this, or look like that, then, then as Carrie says, I would be enough. It would finally be true. I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. We'd add to Carrie's words, then we'd finally be important. Then we'd be great. Then we'd be great. Because after all, and I want you to hear this, in varying degrees, in varying theaters, we all want to be great. We all want to matter. We all want to be significant. We all want to be recognized and noticed and felt, feel in the deep part of our soul that we matter. We want greatness. And fortunately for us, Jesus is going to address that desire of ours in the passage we're looking at, in the passage that Benu read for us. What you'll see in this passage, if you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 9, it's 845. You'll need to leave your Bibles open there. That's where we'll be you'll discover that this desire for greatness isn't a 2016 desire. This is what the disciples desired in this passage of Mark chapter 9. And Jesus is going to address this desire for greatness. And what I want you to hear is that perhaps to your surprise, Jesus isn't going to even rebuke them for their desire to be great. He's simply going to redefine for them what greatness means. Hear that again. He's not going to squash this desire to be significant, to matter, to do worthy things, or be a a, a person of worth. He's going to simply redefine for them what greatness means. It starts in verse 30. Here's how it begins. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So in this section, Mark starts by telling us that Jesus and his disciples go through Galilee. They're passing through. And now in these sections, Jesus is in some familiar territory. In verse 30, he's in Galilee. In 33, he's in Capernaum. And what you'll know as we've walked through Mark is these are places Jesus and the disciples have been before. Not even just been, whenever Jesus has showed up in these places, crowds have flocked. This is where he's ministered, this is where he's done ministry. Everybody knows Jesus there. The last time we were in these sections, the house was so crowded, no one could squeeze in. Peter would add things through Mark's words like we couldn't even eat. There were so many people there. The crowds come whenever Jesus is in this territory. But here, Mark tells us that Jesus kept his whereabouts unknown. He's like a celebrity that's hiding from the paparazzi. And Mark tells us the reason he didn't want anyone to know, verse 31, is because he was teaching his disciples. So the reason for the secrecy, the reason for the privacy, if you will, is because of Jesus' priority at this point. Jesus has limited time now left on the earth. And what he decides to make his priority is this private moment with just his disciples. Now you think of that for a second. There are still thousands left to heal. There's still thousands of hungry people to feed. There's still innumerable graves for him to raise people from the dead. And yet, at this point, with all the good that he could do, With all the public ministry and stadiums full of people that could have been packed, Jesus decides that all of that is only going to bring about temporary relief. As important as any and all of those things might be, Jesus now puts his priority in investing in 12 people and making sure that they get why he has come and what he has come to do. After all, if you remember, they're the plan. There is no plan B, there is no backup. He's going to entrust his entire mission and ministry onto the backs of these 12. And so he decides, despite all the public good he can do, he's going to huddle privately with his disciples to make sure they get who he is, what he's come to do. And what he's come to do is not treat the symptoms, but minister a cure. So what is that? What is it that Jesus has come to do? What is it that they need to understand as the epicenter of Jesus' mission and ministry? He tells us in 31, in the second part. For he was teaching his disciples, and here's what he was teaching them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Everything Jesus is about, Everything Jesus has come to do, everything they need to know and we with them need to know is right here. Jesus here predicts his death for a second time. He says to his disciples now, he did it once in Mark 8, he's done it once now in Mark 9, he'll do it a third time in Mark 10. He says to his disciples, I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill me and after three days I will rise. There's some things to perhaps notice in what he says. For example, he says this phrase of being delivered. The Son of Man will be delivered. Uh, It's essentially almost, he's going to be handed over. And commentators and scholars say, this is a a phrase in the original language that would have been passive, meaning this is going to happen to Jesus. And and who is it that's doing this handing over? Uh, On one sense, you might say it's it's someone like Judas who's going to betray him and hand him over to his enemies. In other sense, you might say it's, it's Pilate, the judge, who's going to hand him over to be crucified. But the scholars would note there's a deeper thing here. Some call it a divine passive, meaning the subject who's doing this handing over is actually God himself. Unmentioned and unnamed, God himself is handing over his son, delivering his son into what? Into the hands of men, Jesus says. The father is going to take his son, the son he just said on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. I love this boy. I delight in this boy. And God is going to take that delighted, beautiful son and hand him over. Hand him over where? Into the hands of men, Jesus says. This second time, Jesus describes the people he's being handed over to as the the hands of men. The first time in Mark 8, he had specified the Jewish scribes. Leaders, chief priests, this was the people who were going to kill him. Now, in the second one, Jesus makes it generic. It's not just the Jewish leaders that are responsible for his his death. He implicates all of humanity. He says it's into the hands of men that God is going to deliver him. That means this verse is saying all humanity, meaning you and I are implicated in this verse. Our part is in here. His blood is on our hands as well. The Father is going to take His beloved Son and deliver Him, hand Him over into our hands. And what are we going to do once we get our hands on this Son of Man? We're going to kill Him. That's what we'll do. Once we get Him in our hands, we'll kill Him. That's what we'll do with the beloved Son of God. And this verse is showing us, listen, Jesus is not a victim to to Judas's betrayal or, or Pilate's cowardice. This is the plan of God to deliver his precious son into the hands of men to do what they want with him and what they want to do to him is kill him. He will be given to us for us. But it won't end there because after three days Jesus promises I will rise again. Now this is everything they need to know. This is everything we need to know. This is the gospel the good news. That in love for us, the father took his beloved son, handed him over to us and for us. And once we got our hands on him, we killed him. But death itself couldn't stop this one because he had come for our sins. He will defeat our sins and he will rise again in victory over our sins. This is what we need to get. This is what they needed to get. And verse 32 says, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. Now hear me, how could they? How could they understand what he was saying? They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Without giving you 45 minutes of background on all that that could mean, Messiah simply meant the anointed one, meaning you you poured oil, anointed kings. Well, Well, there was a king coming greater than all the kings of Israel. A a king greater than David. David killed a a giant named Goliath. If you've been waiting hundreds of years for a king even greater than David, what's that king going to do? That's what they're thinking of this Messiah, Jesus Christ. What on earth is this Messiah talking about in connection to he's going to die? It doesn't make sense for them. If I said there's a heavyweight champion of the world and he gets knocked out in the first round, you go, wait, how does those two phrases make sense? How do you put knocked out and heavyweight champion of the world together? How do you put Messiah is going to be handed over to die in the same sentence? doesn't make sense to them. For us, we know what Jesus is talking about because you've been to church before, you've read the story before, but for them, it makes no sense at all. It'd be like this. If I gave you a thousand-piece puzzle, You tore open the box, you put the picture of what that puzzle is going to be up on the shelf, and then you start building. You put pieces together, and you're constantly looking to the picture as to how this is all going to fit. But what if I gave you a thousand-piece puzzle in just a clear plastic bag with nothing to look at? Now, what would you do? You'd fumble with these pieces and their different colors and their shades and you'd be trying to figure out how this all fits, but you have no vision of the big picture of what this is all going to be to make sense of this. That's what the disciples are doing. You and I hear Jesus predicts his death. We know there's the cross and the resurrection and all this stuff makes sense and all the pieces fit into this big picture we've seen. They are thumbing through pieces and trying to figure out how these things fit and they have no idea where this is all going. And so they did not understand. Verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying and then, this is the part I love, and they were afraid to ask him. Twelve grown men and they, you could picture them. They hear Jesus saying this and you can imagine them going, okay, they're sort of scratching their heads They're sort of rubbing their eyes. The Messiah is going to die and then rise again. And you can imagine one of them starts bumping the other and go, hey, hey, ask him what he's talking about. And you can imagine one of them going, I'm not asking, you ask him. I'm not asking, you ask him. And you can imagine this went on among the 12. One of them bumped into Philip and said, Philip, you're always asking questions. Ask him, what does he mean? Uh, Philip goes, no, Thomas, you ask him. Thomas says, I doubt it'll do any good. I'm not asking him anything, right? (laughs) And then one of them bumps into John. John, he likes you. Everybody knows he likes you. You go ask him. Finally, one of them goes to Peter. Peter, you're the one who's always talking up. Ask him what he's talking about. Could you imagine, Peter? Do you guys remember what he said to me the last time I talked to him about something with his death? He called me Satan. I am not talking to him about this, right? Here they are. They did not understand, but they were afraid to ask him. They don't get it. And in fact, you'll see how much they don't get it in what comes next. Because at this point, here they are with a question they're afraid to ask. But now, there's a question they're afraid to answer. That's the next section, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? So now there's a shift in scenery. They've traveled some more. Jesus gets into a house. Perhaps it's Peter's house again from back in chapter 1. And Jesus goes, hey, fellas, I noticed you guys discussing something on the way. You almost wonder if Jesus put air quotes around discussing because it was far from a discussion. Hey, what were you all discussing on the road? And verse 34 tells us it was anything but a discussion. It says, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Right? Here they are, 12 grown men, afraid again. This time, not to ask Jesus a question, but to answer Jesus' question. And here they are, 12 grown men, all sort of sheepishly looking down, perhaps at their feet, and shifting about, nudging one another again, saying, you answer him. No, 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 you answer him. I'm not answering him. And here they are again, too afraid to answer Jesus' question, because they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now you think for a second. Let's imagine for a second. What brought about that particular argument at that particular moment? Why were they discussing this idea of who's the greatest? You you think with me for a second. As we've walked through Mark and seen these stories, is there anything that would indicate that they now have a reason to talk about sort of who stands where and what their position is and where they rank with Jesus and among one another? Anything that would have brought about that conversation? Perhaps. Perhaps it's what we just saw. Do you remember the Transfiguration? where Jesus didn't bring the twelve up to the mountain. He picked three of them. And three of them went up to the mountain, while the other nine were left below. And three of them got a sneak peek into divinity, Jesus' glory, the Father's voice, while the other nine were left below to deal with that demon-possessed boy. And you imagine if that brought about some conversation. You'd imagine if James and John probably couldn't couldn't hold their tongue anymore. I mean, how could we have seen what we saw and not talk about it? So you wonder if James and John maybe casually, maybe sort of subtly brought it up. Hey, by the way, wasn't that transfiguration amazing? Oh, that's right. You guys weren't there. That's right. You can imagine Peter chimes in. That's right, fellas. They weren't there because the B team, I mean, the rest of them were left below to deal with that demon. And and maybe he whispered, and they didn't even think to pray. Not exactly leadership material, if you ask me, right? And maybe at that point, Thomas barked up, give me a break, Peter. We heard what you did on the mountain. Your brilliant suggestion was to build a tent and stay there, right? The father had to literally quiet you and say, listen to Jesus now, right? And and maybe Philip at that point adds, I highly doubt that someone Jesus called Satan is going to be the greatest of all of us. And maybe Peter says, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Uh -uh." And that's the sort of thing going on among the future apostles of Jesus' church. This is who he's going to build the entire Christian movement on. And they're arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Now, listen, I'm making light of it, but I don't want us to miss. There's real tension among the 12 right now. You ever have conflict, you know what that's like? Nobody likes conflict. There's conflict there. I think it gives hope to go normal people like us. They weren't 12 magical people with halos around their head. They bickered and argued and got into disagreements. You'd imagine in this moment there's bruised egos. You'd imagine there was defensive sentences. Don't say that about me. You don't know this about me. You'd imagine there's some hurt feelings. Maybe they did wonder, how come those three went up? And why were we left down here? What does he think about them? And where does he think me? Maybe there was all of that brewing in them and among them. And here, I also want you to see, there's a real spirit of of pride, of, of arrogance brewing in these disciples. They're jockeying for position to be recognized and noticed and power. In fact, you'll see that even in the passage to come. In the next section, and we won't talk much through it, there's this scene where the disciples inform Jesus, hey, we saw a man trying to cast out a demon in your name, but don't worry, we told him to stop. You don't have anything to worry about because he wasn't following us. And Peter and and Jesus has to correct John even in that. You begin to see their mind frame. They they sort of feel like they're the inner circle of this whole thing and and that guy out there is not, and, and they're the gatekeepers to figure out who's in and who's out. And what's surprising about that is, if the disciples had learned anything, they just had been unable to cast out a demon. Here's a guy actually doing it, and they critique him. And moreover, John's sentence is actually, he's not following us. Not even, he's not following you, so we told him to stop. He's not following us, as if John and the disciples took on, we're the ones that have to decide if he's with us or not. And Jesus is going to have to see this sort of pride brewing about, this jockeying for position and power, this worldly ambition and status and privilege and all this stuff swirling about in their heads. And Jesus is going to address it. So he says to them, Hey, tell me, what were you discussing on the way? They don't say anything. And so now Jesus will teach them. What you'll see, by the way, as one side note, is there's a pattern in Mark now. There's three times Jesus predicts his death. And all three times, there's a pattern. He'll predict his death. The disciples will royally mess it up. And then he'll have to teach. He'll have to correct them. That's what happens the first time. He predicts his death. Peter messes up. He teaches, hey, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. You'll see the same thing in the third one, in chapter 10. He'll predict his death. James and John will mess it up. He'll have to teach. Same thing here. He's going to predict his death. The disciples are royally going to get this wrong. And so now he's going to have to teach. Verse 35. And he sat down. That's the position a rabbi would have taken. And he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's a very simple sentence. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. They are, even in that very moment, all the way up until that second, they are thinking Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, he's going to get a crown, and we're going to be the company, his band of friends right there with him. The only thing left is to figure out who stands where, what positions we're going to have in this new empire and new kingdom. They have no idea that rather than a crown, Jesus will get a cross. They have no idea that he is going there as the suffering servant. And they certainly have no idea that if they're going to follow him, they are called to be servants of all. He says to them, Do you want to be first? And hear this at Road. Then voluntarily put yourself last. Do you want to be first? Then voluntarily put yourself last. Do you want to be great? Then let yourself be treated like the lowest, the last, and the least. Do you want significance? Do you want to matter? Do you want to be truly great? Then here's what God considers greatness. To serve others. In God's understanding, what Jesus wants these disciples to get is, I want you to be great, but here's what greatness is. It's to be lowest and last and least. It's to come in last so that others can come in first, It's to be servant of all. That's greatness in my kingdom. It's counter, no matter how much you might nod your head and go, sure, we we get the importance of serving and all of us are ready to serve. It's completely counter to how we think and operate and it does not come instinctively to any of us. Right? It doesn't come instinctively to any of us. I remember being at the advanced conference last year. And during it, there was this breakout session, and, and, and I was there, and Shainu was there. Shainu had volunteered, my wife, to, to take care of the speaker's kids in the back of the room. And the man who was speaking started speaking, and in fact, he talked about greatness. And he had this simple line that I always remember. He said, greatness is not how many people serve you. Greatness is how many people you serve. Right? a simple line. Because it's counter to how the world thinks. Greatness is not about getting people to serve you. Greatness is you serving people. That's Jesus' understanding of it. And then he went on to say, look, if we really believe Jesus' definition of greatness, he said, who's the greatest person in this room right now? And here's a room with pastors and speakers and folks with titles and degrees and people who will share the stage of that whole thing. And he said, the greatest person in this room is Shinu in the back. And he said, because right now, she is watching our kids, literally rocking them to sleep. And as she's serving, she's the greatest one in this room. It'd be like saying, look, in Jesus' definition, who's the greatest people in church this morning? It'd be the people not even in this room, the ones upstairs watching little ones so that you could sit here. Meaning it wouldn't be the preacher behind the pulpit. It wouldn't even be the dutiful listeners in the pews. It'd be the ones who are caring for kids this very moment so you could sit here. This is the way Jesus talks about greatness. That the lowly, beneath you, unnoticed, unthanked task is the way of Jesus. This is what it means to be great. Well, this would probably make more sense seen rather than just heard. And so Jesus is going to give his disciples an object lesson. He says in verse 36, as this passage closes, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So they've argued about greatness. Jesus has told this sentence. Whoever of you would be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he grabs a little kid. Maybe little Levi is running around in the corner. He grabs Levi. He says, Levi, come here. And he puts Levi on his lap. And then he tells his disciples something. Now, when we see little Levi in Jesus' lap, we'd imagine the lesson he's about to communicate is all of us should be like this little kid, right? Look how innocent he is. Look how humble he is. That's what we should be like. That's actually not his point. You see, in Jesus' day... Children were the lowest, the last, and the least. They were best seen and not heard. They, they had no standing in society. They had no significance. They couldn't contribute anything. They couldn't do anything. All they did was take, and every parent here says amen, right? That's all. They, they don't have anything. They don't offer anything. They can't do anything. They just drain you, right? They're the lowest, the last, and the least. And Jesus takes one, one such child. I didn't mean to offend the kids who are in the room. <laughs> He takes one such child, the lowest, the last, and the least, and he holds them up and he says, If you're going to receive me and receive moreover the Father who sent me, you're going to receive one such as this. And his point is simply this insofar as you serve, insofar as you receive the lowest, the least, the socially insignificant, the socially awkward, the ones who the world and society would count as having no standing, that's a good measure of how you receive Jesus and moreover, the Father who sent Jesus. This is what it means to be great in my kingdom, Jesus says. So I'll end by asking, how will you apply Jesus' simple, straightforward teaching this week? And I want to simply say, I promise you there will be no shortage of opportunities for you to do that. As a preacher, I always wrestle with application, right? Like, I know how to teach a passage. I'm not really sure what you're always supposed to do with the passage. I can promise you this week there will be no shortage of opportunities for you to apply this passage. Because God will give you hundreds of opportunities to come in last rather than first to be lowest and least of all, to serve. There will be no shortage of opportunities. The question is, how will you apply Jesus' teaching of what it means to be great this week? What will this mean for you at home, with your roommates, or with your husband, or your wife, or your kids? What will it look like this week to come in last, to serve, Not because everyone around you deserves it or is worthy of it, but because you trust in Jesus. Because you want to receive him. And that expression of receiving him is expressed in how you receive and serve others. What will this mean for you in church? I want you to think for a moment. The world is drawn to those who are brilliant and beautiful and gifted and competent and capable, who have great personalities and charisma What a sad thing it would be if the church of Jesus operates the same way. And so what will you do? How will your posture be to the people that come into this room? The church, Paul in the New Testament said, is filled with people who are not considered wise by worldly standards or gifted or strong. They're the weak ones, the awkward ones, the insignificant ones. And yet here, they should be received. And to the measure you receive them... You receive not just them, but Jesus and the Father who sent Jesus. So what will your posture be? How will you be at work with a coworker? How will you be with those who you work for? And maybe more to the point, how will you be towards those who work for you? What will serving, being last and lowest and least look like for you in those who report to you? In, in those you have authority and power over, in a hundred different ways, if you'll take moments on this day of rest, there are ways for you to apply this passage. And Jesus is asking us to be great, to ask ourselves, what menial, lowly, almost beneath you task will you give yourself to this week as a follower of Jesus Christ? And, and I want to encourage you that as you do those simple things, The next section ended with Jesus promising, listen, if you give a cup of cold water in my name to another, I won't even forget that. And so Jesus promises us no task, no matter how lowly, no matter how insignificant, no matter how unnoticed or unthanked, will be forgotten by God. You just have to get your heart wrapped around the idea that what goes unseen by men is seen by God. What doesn't matter to people matters a great deal to God. And you can give yourself to that if you'll stop chasing things to fulfill you and trust in Christ who can. This week, meditate on serving others. And it will spare you from being offended because other people don't treat you as you deserve to be treated. Because you'll be preoccupied with thinking of how you are to serve those around you. And when you do, you reflect the Messiah. The one who in verse 30 and 31 told us, I came so that I might be made nothing and little and low. When you see how he has served you, it can unlock your heart to serve others. It's not because you were all that impressive or great or strong or capable or worthy that the Son of Man came to be delivered into your hands so that you could kill him, so that he could die for your sins. He served you that way. And when you get it, you're moved to serve others that way as well. He tells you this morning, greatness is not in people serving you, but in how many people you serve. And that's Jesus' call for us this morning. Let's pray together.